Welcome back to the lectures on decision-making in public service. And today, we have the last lecture with Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. This lecture will cover part five, the two selves, and the final four chapters of the book. Kahneman starts this part with chapter 35, the two selves, and makes a distinguish, uh, distinguishes between experienced utility and decision utility. Kahneman says, the term utility has had two distinct meanings in its long history. Jeremy Bentham opened his introduction to the principles of morals and legislation with the famous sentence, Nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, as well as to determine what we shall do. In an awkward footnote, Bentham apologized for applying the word utility to these experiences, saying that he had been unable to find a better word. To distinguish Bentham's interpretation of the term, I will call it experienced utility. It goes on to say, for the last hundred years, economists have used the same word to mean something else. As economists and decision theorists apply the term, it means wantability, and I have called it decision utility. Expected utility theory, for example, is entirely about the rules of rationality that should govern utilities, as in decision utility, it has nothing at all to say about hedonic experiences, which is more about experienced utility. And Kahneman highlights that decision utility and experienced utility um, diverge. He says his fascination with the possible discrepancies between experienced utility and decision utility go back a long way, something that him and Amos Tversky have looked at. And they noticed that a decision maker who pays different amounts to achieve the same gains of experienced utility or be spared the same loss is making a mistake. You may find this observation obvious, but in decision theory, the only basis for judging that a decision is wrong is inconsistency with other preferences. He goes on to talk about uh, experience and memory and find some interesting implications of the way in which we recall our experiences and what that means for our, our utility. And they discovered in, a, uh, in an experiment that patients A and B, um, even though patient A has, um, has a shorter span uh, in total, overall total pain, um, patient B has uh, a longer duration of pain, but it tailors off more slowly. People often preferred uh, um, patient B outcomes as opposed to patient A outcomes. And uh, Kahneman goes over that survey, uh, that experiment in some detail. And what they learned, um, they had uh, patient A and patient B report their experience levels of pains. And the Kahneman says here, when the procedure was over, all participants were asked to rate the total amount of pain they had experienced during the procedure. The wording was intended to encourage them to think of the integral of the pain, all of it put together, they had reported, reproducing the hedon hedonometer totals. Surprisingly, the patients did nothing of the kind. The statistical analysis revealed the two findings which illustrate a pattern we have observed in other experiences. So, they observed the peak end rule, which is the global retrospective rating was well predicted by the average of the level of pain 
reported at the worst moment of the experience and at its end. So the peak experience of pain and then the recall of how the episode ended. And they also noticed duration neglect. The duration of the procedure had no effect whatsoever on the ratings of total pain. Which is a little weird that when people are thinking about their experiences, it's they're guided by the peak experience and how the experience ended, and that the overall level from the total duration of pain wasn't um, didn't have an effect on the ratings of total pain. So this is an odd finding that people would prefer overall more total pain if the peak was slightly lower and if the if the end tailored off more slowly and, it, and that the, the final experience isn't as unpleasant. He says, Kahneman says, I find it helpful to think of this dilemma as a conflict of interest between two selves which do not correspond to the two familiar systems, system one and two that we've been talking about. Instead, he calls these the experiencing self is the one that answers the question, does it hurt now? And the remembering self is the one that answers the question, how was it on the whole? Memories are all we get to keep from our experience of living, and the only perspective that we can adopt as we think about our lives is therefore the remembering self. So Kahneman's highlighting that the, the self that experiences the pain in the current moment is different than the remembering self, the self that uh, thinks about how the experience actually played out in retrospect. Kahneman says, confusing experience with the memory of it is a compelling cognitive illusion, and it is the substitution that makes us believe a past experience can be ruined. The experiencing self does not have a voice. The remembering self is sometimes wrong, but it is the only one that keeps score and governs what we learn from living, and it is the one that makes decisions. What we learn from the past is to maximize the qualities of our future memories, not necessarily of our future experiences. This is the tyranny of the remembering self. So again, Kahneman's highlighting that you have an experiencing self that experiencing experiencing things in the moment, and a remembering self who recalls uh, memories of what happened, and that often this remembering self is not a good reporter, does not really capture what the experienced self felt in the moment. And part of the challenges for thinking about this finding is which self should be paid more attention to, the remembering self and the improvement of future memories or the experiencing self and the future of, experience, of future experiences. And Kahneman notes here that the remembering self is the one that makes the decisions and helps tell the, tell the narrative of who we are and we often give a lot of decision-making power to the remembering self. So he highlights this through a couple of other um, examples and uh, experiments in this chapter, but he closes this chapter with, Tastes and decisions are shaped by memories, and the memories can be wrong. The evidence presents a profound challenge to the idea that humans have consistent preferences and know how to maximize them, a cornerstone of the rational agent model. An inconsistency is built into the design of our minds. 
We have strong preferences about the duration of our, of our experiences of pain and pleasure. We want pain to be brief and pleasure to last. But our memory, a function of System 1, has evolved to represent the most intense moment of an episode of pain or pleasure, the peak, and the feelings when the episode was at its end. A memory that neglects duration will not serve our preferences for long pressure and short pains. So we have the peak end rule that our remembering self remembers the peak experience and how it ended. And we have duration neglect where our remembering self does not adequately take into account the length of an experience. Right in chapter 36, uh, Kahneman talks about life as a story. And um, a couple of quotes from this chapter, Kahneman says, A story is about significant events and memorable moments, not about time passing. Duration neglect is normal in a story, and the ending often defines its character. The same core features appear in the rules of narratives and in the memories of colonoscopies, vacations, and films. This is how the remembering self works. It composes stories and keeps them for future reference. So Kahneman's highlighting here that much of how our remembering self works is related to, is similar to how we tell stories in art, how we tell stories to ourselves about our experiences, uh, how we think about characters that we view in books or movies, that often how we think about those characters um, has little to do with with their duration, but more about their peak experiences and how their experience ended. Uh, Kahneman also highlights how this plays out in how we care for people um, and how we think about the stories of those around us and um, the way in which we pay attention to their story also uh, is similar to the story of the remembering self is, is uh creating rather than the experiencing self and this has to do even when we think about the stories of other people in our lives we often think about their stories even more so than what their experiencing self would have experienced for example Kahneman says caring for people often takes the form of concern for the quality of their stories not their feelings indeed we can be deeply moved even by events that change the stories of people who are already dead we feel pity for a man who died believing in his wife's love for him when we hear that she had a lover for many years and stayed with her husband only for his money. We pity that husband, although he had, a ha although he had lived a happy life. We feel the humiliation of a scientist who made an important discovery that was proved false after she died, although she did not experience the humi humiliation. Most important, of course, we all care intensely for the narrative of our own life, and very much want it to be a good story with a decent hero. And some of the example here finds, uh, some of the examples that Kahneman uh, from experiments provides here is that when people reflect on the quality of someone else's life, um, they, they have the same duration neglect um, and care very, about, very much about the end of their story. And so, they rate as a better life experience those who live shorter but uh, in their lives in a pleasant state as opposed to those who live longer but uh, the last few years of their life were unpleasant. So this is really ingrained in how we think about each other, 
how we think about life and how we think about the quality of life uh, for those that we care about. Um, Kahneman highlights what truly matters when we intuitively assess such episodes is the progressive deterioration or improvement of the ongoing experience and how the person feels at the end. So again, this is sort of intuitive to us. I think most people want uh, or have a fear of a slowly degraded life experience towards the end of their life. And we, natu and we naturally want other people to avoid this as well. And we care about the person's very last memories and very last experiences. Kahneman applies this also to vacations. He says, in many cases, we evaluate touristic vacations by the story and the memories that we expect to store. Hence, as you may have heard, people using the term making memories. The word memorable is often used to describe vacation highlights, explicitly revealing the goal of the experience. In other situations, love comes to mind. The declaration that the present moment will never be forgotten, though not always accurate, changes the character of the moment. A self-consciously memorable experience gains a weight and significance that it would not otherwise have. Kahneman closes the chapter with, Odd as it may seem, I am my remembering self, and the experiencing self who does my living is like a stranger to me. So Kahneman's highlighting again that our identities, our narratives about ourselves, have very little to do with our actual experiences on day-to-day uh, -day in the current moment and have much more to do with the stories we tell ourselves about our experiences and with the memories that we have. Some, uh, some water cooler talk, uh, quotes that Kahneman leaves us for the end of this chapter. Uh, speaking of life as a story, Kahneman says, He is desperately trying to protect the narrative of a life of integrity, which is endangered by the latest episode. The length of which he was willing to go for a one-night encounter is a sign of total duration neglect. You seem to be devoting your entire vacation to the construction of memories. Perhaps you should put the camera away and enjoy the moment, even if it is not very memorable. She is an Alzheimer's patient. She no longer maintains a narrative of her life, but her experiencing self is still sensitive to beauty and gentleness. In the next chapter, uh, Kahneman talks about uh, experienced well-being and how we might go about measuring or thinking about experienced well-being. And um, Kahneman highlights some frustrations with um, the experience of a moment or an episode is not easily represented by a single happiness value. Um, and he talks about an ind index that he created with some scholars called the, uh, the U-Index, which is... Uh, represents an unpleasant index. And he talks about a strategy that uh, to go about measuring unpleasant index. And that in a study that he did with several uh, co-authors that they used the day reconstruction method where they asked people to uh, rate how um, un unpleasant their feelings were at any moment throughout their day. And they found that American women spent about 19% of the time in an unpleasant state, which was somewhat higher than French women at 16% or Danish women at 14%.
In their study, Kahneman says, a striking observation was the extent of inequality in the distribution of emotional pain. About half of their participants reported going through an entire day without experiencing an unpleasant episode. On the other hand, a significant minority of the population experienced considerable emotional distress for much of the day. It appears that a small fraction of the population does most of the suffering, whether because of physical or mental illness, an unhappy temperament, or the misfortunes and personal tragedies in their life. Kahneman goes on to say, a U-index, the un unpleasant index, can also be computed for activities. For example, we can measure the proportion of time that people spend in a negative emotional state while commuting, working, interacting with their parents, spouses, or children. For example, for 1,000 American women in a Midwestern city, the U-index was 29% for the morning commute, 27% for work, 24% for childcare, 18% for housework, 12% for socializing, 12% for watching TV, and 6% for sex. Kahneman highlights that attention is really uh, key um, to our emotional state. He says our emotional state is largely determined by what we attend to, and we are normally focused on our current activity and immediate environment. And so how we feel in large part determines uh, what we're paying attention to and how we're guiding our attention. He says, uh, these observations have implications for both individuals and society. The use of time is one of the areas of life over which people have some control. Few individuals can will themselves to have a sunnier disposition, but some may be able to arrange their lives to spend less of their day commuting and more time doing things they enjoy. The feelings associated with different activities suggest that another way to improve experience is to switch from passive leisure, such as TV watching, to more active forms of leisure, such as socializing and exercise. From the social perspective, improved transportation for the labor force, availability of child care for working women, and improved socializing opportunities for the elderly may be relatively efficient ways to reduce the U-index of society. Kahneman goes on to highlight uh, some of the other things that affect uh, measured uh, measures of experienced well-being. These are things that are regularly collected in national surveys. Um, and he notes that the second best predictor of the feelings of a day is whether a person did or did not have contacts with friends or relatives. It is only a slight exaggeration to say that happiness is the experience of spending time with people you love and who love you. Kahneman goes on to say, speaking of life, Excuse me, some aspect of life, some aspects of life have more effect on the evaluation of one's life than on the experience of living. Educational attainment is an example. More education is associated with higher evaluation of one's life, but not with greater experience well-being. Indeed, at least in the United States, the more education tends to report the more educated tend to report higher stress. It's also some findings about income. Uh, for example, um, Kahneman and his uh, colleagues uh, using the Gallup Healthways Wellbeing Index um, have found that the conclusion is that being poor makes one miserable and that being rich may enhance one's life satisfaction but does not, on average, improve experienced well-being. 
Severe poverty amplifies the experienced effects of other misfortunes of life as well. And Kahneman notes, the satiation, the satiation level beyond which experienced well-being no longer increases was a household income of about 75000 in high-cost areas. The average increase of well-being associated with incomes beyond that level was precisely zero. He goes on to say there is a clear contrast between the effects of income on experienced well-being and on life satisfaction. Higher income brings with it higher satisfaction well beyond the point at which it ceases to have any positive effect on experience. So higher levels of income bring with it higher levels of satisfaction of looking at someone's life more so than it does any positive effect on experience over some threshold. Chapter 38, Kahneman talks about thinking about life. And here he highlights the term that's introduced by Daniel Gilbert and Timothy Wilson, uh, known as effective forecasting. And um, this idea uh, is highlighted in an example of looking at marriage and that on their wedding day, the bride and groom know that the rate of divorce is high and that the incidence of marital disappointment is even higher, but they do not believe those statistics apply to them. Here again, uh, Kahneman highlights that attention is key um, to thinking about life and what we pay attention to as a large role in how we think about our life. Um, Kahneman notes that there is a low correlation between individual circumstances and their satisfaction with life, and that this um, is that both experienced is because both experienced happiness and life satisfaction are largely determined by the genetics of temperament. A disposition for well-being is as heritable as height or intelligence, as demonstrated by studies of twins separated at birth. He also highlights that. Um, Goals make a large difference in terms of life satisfaction. Uh, for example, the importance that people attach to income at age 18 also anticipated their satisfaction with their income as adults. So the goals that you pick for yourself have a, uh, an important role in your overall life satisfaction. It goes into a little bit more detail of this. Uh, Kahneman says, the people who wanted money and got it were significantly more satisfied than average. Those who wanted money and didn't get it were significantly more dissatisfied. The same principle applies to other goals. One recipe for a dissatisfied adulthood is setting goals that are especially difficult to attain. Measured by life satisfaction 20 years later, the least promising goal that a young person could have was becoming accomplished in a performing art. Teenagers' goals influence what happens to them, where they end up, and how satisfied they are. Kahneman goes on to say, the goals that people set for themselves are so important to what they do and how they feel about it that an exclusive focus on experienced well-being is not tenable. We cannot hold a concept of well-being that ignores what people want. On the other hand, it is also true that a concept of well-being that ignores how people feel as they live and focuses only on how they feel when they think about their life is also untenable. 
we must accept the complexities of a hybrid view in which the well-being of both selves is considered. Kahneman talks about the focusing illusion. He says, any aspect of life to which attention is directed will loom large in a global evaluation. This is the essence of the focusing illusion. So whatever you're focusing on will make that thing seem much more important than it actually is. And this is uh, uh, built in part on the what you see is all there is phenomenon. He says the essence of the focusing illusion is what you see is all there is, giving too much weight to uh, the climate in the example here, too little to all of the other determinants of well-being. Focusing illusion can also uh, can cause people to be wrong about their present state of well-being, as well as about the happiness of others and about their own happiness in the future. And focusing illusion can also be guided by framing effects that we covered earlier in this book. Kahneman goes on to say the focusing illusion creates a bias in favor of goods and experiences that are initially exciting even if they will eventually lose their appeal. Time is neglected causing experiences that will retain their attention value in the long term to be appreciated less than they deserve to be. Kahneman closes out this chapter on thinking about life by uh, some comments on time. He says the role of time has been a refrain in this part of the book. It is logical to describe the life of the experiencing self as a series of moments, each with a value. The value of an episode, I have called it a hedonometer total, is simply the sum of the value of its moments. But this is not how the mind represents episodes. The remembering self, as I have described it, also tells stories and makes choices and neither the stories nor the choices properly represent time. In storytelling mode, an episode is represented by a few critical moments, especially the beginning, the peak, and the end. Duration is neglected. All right, this leads us to the final chapter on conclusions. And I'm going to read a good bit of this chapter to you to highlight some of uh, Kahneman's final takeaways. Kahneman says, I began this book by introducing two fictitious characters, spent more time discussing two species, and ended with two selves. The two characters were the intuitive system one, which does the fast thinking and the effortful and slower system two, which does the slow thinking, monitors system one, and maintains control as best it can within its limited resources. The two species were the fictitious econs who, lend in the, who live in the land of theory and the humans who act in the real world. The two selves are the experiencing self, which does the living and the remembering self, which keeps score and makes the choices. So Kahneman's highlighting of these talked about system one and system two, econs and humans, and the remembering self and experiencing self. So one of the challenges with the two selves is to figure out which of those selves um, 
deserves weight when it thinks about when you think about when we think about decision making and when we think about overall well-being and we think about uh, policy choices. And he highlights some of the challenges that how an, obje an objective observer would want to limit overall suffering for an individual, but the remembering self chooses episodes that maybe had over more overall pain, but had a lower peak and a lower end level of pain. Kahneman says the neglect of duration combined with the peak end rule causes a bias that favors a short period of intense joy over a long period of moderate happiness. The mirror image of the same bias makes us fear a short period of intense but tolerable pain, but tolerable suffering, more than we fear a much longer period of moderate pain. Kahneman says, We should not forget, however, that the perspective of the memory, remembering self is not always correct. An, object, an objective deserver on the hedonometer profile with the interest of the experiencing self in mind might well offer different advice. The remembering self's neglect of duration its exaggerated emphasis on peaks and ends and its susceptibility to hindsight combine to yield distorted reflections of our actual experience. In contrast, the duration-weighted conception of well-being treats all moments of life alike, memorable or not. Some moments end up weighted more than others, either because they are memorable or because they are important. The time that people spend dwelling on a, memor a memorable moment should be included in its duration, adding to its weight. Kahneman goes on to say, The logic of duration waiting is compelling, but it cannot be considered a complete theory of well-being because individuals identify with their remembering self and care about their story. A theory of well-being that ignores what people want cannot be sustained. On the other hand, a theory that ignores what actually happens in people's lives and focuses exclusively on what they think about their life is not tenable either. The remembering self and the experiencing self must both be considered because their interests do not always coincide. Philosophers could struggle with these questions for a long time. Kahneman then goes on to talk about some of the differences between econs and humans and how humans are not always rational, um, and that's what makes them not exactly econs, uh, and that there's benefits to laying out the assumptions of econs as uh, an intellectual foundation uh, for, for logic and um, for consistency of preferences, but that we also must take into account that humans are not always rational as well and that there's much at stake in the debate between uh, econs and humans. Um, Kahneman uh, goes on to talk about um, a few consequences for government uh, in whether we focus on human decision-makers and their messiness or in assuming that they are rational and logical econs. Um, for example, he says, in a nation of econs, Governments should keep out of the way, allowing econs to act as they choose, so long as they do not harm others. If a motorcycle rider chooses to ride without a helmet, a libertarian will support his right to do so. Citizens know what they are doing, even when they choose not to save for their old age or when they expose themselves to addictive substances. 
There is sometimes a hard edge to this position. Elderly people who do not save enough for retirement get little more sympathy than someone who complains about the bill after consuming a large meal at a restaurant. But people aren't um, always rational and have consistent preferences. And thus, um, there is uh, much at stake between the debate of uh, Chicago school economists who hold on to these uh, definitions of decisions being in line with the notion of econs and the behavioral economists who reject the extreme form of the rational agent model in favor of a more nuanced understanding of the ways in which people violate uh, consistent preferences and their remembering self prefers things um, differently than their experiencing self. Kahneman goes on to say, freedom is not a contested value. All the participants in this debate are in favor of it, but life is more complex for behavioral economists than for true believers in human rationality. No behavioral economist favors a state that will force its citizens to eat a balanced diet and to watch only television programs that are good for the soul. For behavioral economists, however, freedom has a cost, which is borne by individuals who make bad choices and by a society that feels obligated to help them. The decision of whether or not to protect individuals against their mistakes therefore presents a dilemma for behavioral economists. The economists of the Chicago School do not face that problem because rational agents do not make mistakes. For adherents of this school, freedom is not freedom is free of charge. And Kahneman goes on to highlight uh, how Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein have argued for libertarian paternalism and nudging people through changing uh, defaults and through the way information is presented to uh, make better decisions. Um, and it's really highlighting here that if humans do behave in the ways that have been described in this book, then that presents some problems for the idea that people are rational and always act in their own best interest. Uh, because we found a lot of situations in this book where the uh, interests between experiencing self and remembering self diverge. Um, people have systematic biases in uh, their preferences. And thus, uh, as Kahneman says, humans, unlike econs, need help to make good decisions. And there, and there are informed and unintrusive ways to provide that help. And so Kahneman is in, uh, in favor here of trying to find ways to protect freedom, but also protect humans and help guide their decision-making in ways that help them have better life outcomes. Kahneman then talks about the two systems. He says, the attentive system two is who we think we are. System two articulates judgments and makes decisions, but it often endorses or rationalizes ideas and feelings that were generated by system one. You may not know that you are optimistic about a project because something about its leader reminds you of your beloved sister or that you dislike a person who looks vaguely like your dentist. <laughs> if asked for an explanation, however, you will search your memory for presentable reasons and will certainly find some. Moreover, you will believe the story you make up. But System 2 is not merely an apologist for System 1. 
It also prevents many foolish thoughts and inappropriate impulses from overt expression. The investment of attention improves performance in numerous activities. Think of the risks of driving through a narrow space while your mind is wandering, an example from earlier in the book, and is essential to some tasks, including comparison, choice, and order reasoning. However, System 2 is not a paragon of rationality. Its abilities are limited, and so is the knowledge to which it has access. We do not always think straight when we reason, and the errors are not always due to intrusive and incorrect intuitions. Often we make mistakes because we, our System 2, do not know any better. Kahneman goes on to say, System 1 is indeed the origin of much that we do wrong, but is also the origin of much of what we do right, which is most of what we do. Our thoughts and actions are routinely guided by System 1 and are generally on the mark. One of the marvels is the rich and detailed model of our world that is maintained in associative memory. It distinguishes surprising from normal events in a fraction of a second immediately generates an idea of what was expected instead of a surprise, and automatically searches for some causal interpretation of surprises and of events as they take place. Memory also holds the vast repertory of skills we have acquired in lifetime and a lifetime of practice, which automatically produce adequate solutions to challenge as they arise, from walking around a large stone on the path to averting the incipient outburst of a customer. The acquisition of skills requires a regular environment, an adequate opportunity to practice, and rapid and unequivocal feedback about the correctness of thoughts and actions. When these conditions are fulfilled, skill eventually develops, and the intuitive judgments and choices that quickly come to mind will mostly be accurate. Kahneman highlights that organizations are better than individuals when it comes to avoiding errors, because they naturally think more slowly and have the power to impose orderly procedures. Organizations can intuitive, excuse me, organizations can institute and enforce the application of useful checklists, as well as more elaborate exercises such as reference class forecasting and pre-mortem. At least, in part, by providing a distinctive vocabulary, organizations can also encourage a culture in which people watch out for one another as they approach minefields. So while Kahneman worries about the ability of individuals to overcome the systematic biases in their decision-making. Well-designed organizations and institutions can help make our collective decision-making more rational. That's all for Kahneman in Thinking Fast and Slow. I hope you take away from this the importance of the two selves, the remembering self, and the experiencing self and how they diverge in their their preferences and what they want the differences between econs and humans and how the models of the model of econs and the rational agent model are very helpful but it's really important to pay attention to the ways in which they break down and what we've learned about actual human decision making and then what that means for how we think about the provision of government services for we think about partic participation in the marketplace and what we think about for encouraging overall well-being. Hope you also take with you a nuanced understanding of System 1 and System 2. And the System 1 system that is an associative machine, that is fast, that is intuitive, that constantly feeds uh, information up to System 2, and System 2, which is the remembering self, it's the decision maker, it uh, more carefully and slowly 
compares two decisions in ways that system one can't do. And that organizations that are well designed can help encourage humans to make better decisions and collectively have better outcomes. We've now covered Thomas Metzinger's The Ego Tunnel and looked at some of the challenges to the ego and the self and agency for thinking about decision making and free will and autonomy. And we've given a long treatment of the systematic biases and heuristics that that a, uh, invade our decision making and the ways in which we are systematically not rational, um, diverge in our preferences, follow the peak end rule, um, have negation, uh, have um, duration neglect, and all the types of ways in which our decisions are biased in ways that are often that are sometimes risk seeking and loss averse, and that we overweight losses relative to gains, that we make decisions from some reference point. All of these things uh, provide real interesting and important insight into how you make decisions and how organizations can be designed, particularly from a governance and public management perspective, to make better decisions even when political forces are pulling them in multiple directions and even being populated by humans who are victims of their system, one thinking, um, and a lot of these heuristics and biases. From here, we're going to move into an exploration of intelligence as the, an ingredient for quality decision making in complex uh, in achieving complex goals and we're going to look at the nature of intelligence and the role that machine intelligence can play in decision making and the potential role that super intelligence might play over time in, uh, in aiding us in making decisions and some concerns that might present for humans as machine intelligence continues to improve and we'll be thinking about ways in which machine intelligence and artificial intelligence can help improve decision making within public management and governance and then some uh, concerns for super intelligence and its abilities and when, uh, when we may want to stick with humans making decisions and in what, uh, what areas and what domains as opposed to substituting their decision making for machine intelligence and artificial intelligence. Thanks for following along. Hope you enjoyed Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. And now we will move on to Nick Bostrom's Superintelligence. Thank you.